Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're on Team Human where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. Playing for Team Human today, food activist Andy Fisher. You know, we need to do the hard stuff. We need to build the political will. We need to start being more creative and going more upstream to address the causes of hunger. Fisher, the author of Big Hunger, the unholy alliance between corporate America and anti-hunger groups, will be explaining how our best intentions to feed the hungry can work against their long-term interests in autonomy. It's time to intervene on behalf of humans. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I've become particularly interested in the way that our actions sometimes work against our best intentions. It's as if something reverses where helping becomes hurting. I mean, we've all seen it in the various inventions and institutions that we come up with, say, money, which may have been invented, was invented, to promote transactions between people, really, to serve as something better than barter. So I could buy something from you, even though you didn't want exactly what I had to offer at that moment. We used money so that you could get something from someone else, and then they could get something from me, and so on. But that invention, which was created to promote the transactions between people, ends up becoming this monopoly currency that has to be borrowed in order to be used, and it ends up becoming the obstacle. Lack of money now is the obstacle between people getting to trade things with one another. Or rather than promoting economic growth and sustainability, money ends up really just draining value from the system because the people who make the money have decided that 
offering us this utility is worth the 90% premium that the financial industry is now charging for us to be able to use it. Or take something like Judaism. You know, I always get in trouble for talking about religion, but Judaism is my own heritage, so I should be allowed to say something here. Judaism was designed originally as an anti-religion, really, as a way of life for the surviving cult members of the Egyptian death cults, the slaves of the Egyptian mindset, if not the actual slaves. They came up with a way of worshiping that didn't involve some idolatry, some god sitting on a pedestal. The whole Ark of the Covenant was different than what they had been using before because it was the only Ark that didn't have the statue of a god on top. It had two little cherubim that were supposed to protect this empty space. So it was invented really as not really an atheism, but as a post-religious approach to life, to ethics, for what we're going to be the the now uh, farm people of the Middle East. And what happened was, over time, you know, both because of persecution and fear and the need to hang on to something, you know, Judaism became another religion. People sit and worship at the Western Wall as if it's some kind of, a, of an idol. The thing that they developed to prevent the establishment of another religion ended up becoming a religion in itself. So now Jews are asked, how are you going to defend Judaism as if Judaism is the thing that needs to be protected more than ethics or connection to other people or the empty space that Judaism tried to create? So the way I've come to understand this phenomenon, what happened to money, what happened to Judaism, what seems to happen to technology, is a reversal of figure and ground. It's an idea that a psychologist in the early 20th century, a guy named Edgar Rubin, came up with, with that famous picture. There was like a cutout in the middle of a vase, and then if you look at it one way, you see the vase. If you look at it the other way, you see the two faces that the shape of the vase creates, these two profile faces. So people who see the vase when they look at the picture are said to see the figure, and people who see the two faces on either side are said to be seeing the ground. It was a really interesting psychological experiment in terms of understanding who sees what and whether, you know, people from the West tend to see the figure and the people from the East tend to see the ground. But it also inspired the whole notion of the medium and the message, you know, where the ground, the environment is the medium and the figure is the message. And McLuhan was arguing that, well, in some ways, the ground is what matters. The ground is the message almost more than the content. It's really a situation where the original subject, the thing that was to be benefited or looked at, really becomes the object. And it becomes clear in many, many situations, like uh, education, where education was originally supposed to be about providing the working class with greater appreciation of life, the ability to read books or understand opera or even engage with Bible. And then education over time 
becomes about preparing people for work. We're not looking at liberal arts and the humanities anymore as the centerpiece of education. People go to college or even a high school, you go to get a job. And then the principals and administrators are going to corporations to find out, well, what do we need to teach our students so they can be better prepared for the workplace? So instead of education being uh, a respite or compensation for the job, education becomes an extension of the job. The, there's a reversal of the, of the figure, which was learning, to the ground, which was the workaday life that these people have to live. And now technology. You know, computers created more time. Networks created more connections between people. And now computers are the extractors of time and networks are a way of blocking people from one another. You know, people should be the subject of technology and not the object. You know, not necessarily as individuals, but people as our whole team. I don't mean uh, that you are the figure. I mean that we are the figure. If anything, stressing one's individuality and isolation makes us more vulnerable to the machinations of our machines. It's like the lone member of a herd of cattle that gets picked off by the lions. The lone, isolated member of Team Human gets picked off by the algorithms. We have to maintain our understanding of ourselves, of humans, as the figure, but a collective figure, a group figure, a team of humans. Hi, I'm Alex Juhas and I'm on Team Human. I am Tessa Lena and I'm on Team Human. I'm Brian Hughes and I'm on Team Human. I'm Richard Heinberg and I'm on Team Human. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. I host the podcast Note to Self. I wrote the book Born and Brilliant and I am on Team Human. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. And one activist who's reckoned long and hard with the way our best laid plans end up becoming so well entrenched that they work against their original intentions is Andy Fisher, author of Big Hunger, The Unholy Alliance Between Corporate America and Anti-Hunger Groups. My daughter uh, volunteers time as an 11-year-old at our local food pantry. Yeah. And that's the closest thing she understands right now to social justice. Uh-huh. What's wrong with this picture? I mean, for her to start, yeah. in other words, you're not telling her not to go help, not to leave, no. get you stack no, tuna cans for the poor. community service. You know, it, it, it's great. I mean, that's the same thing happens in my kids' school, right? You know, I mean, they do community service projects at the food bank, you know, packing carrots or whatever right. it is, right? You know, it is, it, it's fine. I mean, I, I think the question is, you know, can we kind of get beyond that? Is there a way to kind of engage kids in something that's where ch- community service isn't necessarily charity, but that engages their their activist inclinations right. or, or helps them, you know, do something that's takes it the next step? So what does take it to the next step? Oh, well, first, I, before that, though, what what's wrong with it? How does... Uh, uh, and I want I want us to understand this not in that sort of mean Thatcher way, but yeah. how does giving food or or working at the food pantry what is it perpetuating? 
In other words, why why does it why does it necessarily perpetuate the cycle? Is doesn't at least if the person's not hungry, mm-hmm. now they can go and look for a job or something. Well, it does because it doesn't solve anything. I mean, it's a band aid. Oh, it, it solves a problem today, but it doesn't get beyond today. Um, and then you know. That's fine. On some level, that's absolutely fine. But, you know, I think about, look, I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, which is a steel, which, which, which was a thriving steel town in the early, in the 19, until 1979 or so, 1980. And at that point, the bottom fell out from the steel industry. You know, unemployment went up to 20, 30 percent. Tens of thousands of jobs were lost and all the allied jobs in that. And the, the economy went totally south. You know, that emergency precipitated people getting hunger relief because there is immediate an immediate need, right? Fine. That, that's the appropriate solution. Um, but, you know, after doing that for 35 years, why are we not looking more upstream at, and trying to find ways to, you know, take those people uh, who, you know, I went to school with, I went to the, you know, I went to school with the kids of the parents who worked in the steel mills who were making, you know, a a decent union wage and had a house and a boat and all that kind of stuff. And now their kids are working at Walmart and scraping by, um, or their, their grandkids are working at Walmart and scraping by. And we haven't done anything as a society to change the, um, the dynamics. We're still touting, oh, we distributed Two million pounds of food in the in the Mahoning Valley, isn't that wonderful? That's ten percent more than we did last year. No, it's not wonderful. You're not solving the problem. Well, is that you, you're stuck? You're stuck in the problem. Is that you're is that corruption? Is that big food organization five hundred one c three philanthropies just trying to keep their five hundred thousand dollar a year salaries? It's it's the nonprofit industrial complex. It's organizations that see their work defined narrowly upon their missions. This is what we do. We don't necessarily are going to join part of a social movement to address this issue writ large. We're just going to stick to what we do. Boom, boom, boom. And it's a lack of creativity. It's a lack of leadership. Right. It's interesting. I was just talking with a, uh, a credit union and one of their, their they have a, like a three-part mission. But the main part of their mission is, you know, no one in our state goes to bed hungry. And I was like, well, that's nice. And the way they deal with it, of course, is they take extra money that they have and they buy food and give it to poor people. And I'm like, look, you guys run the economy of your state. What if you circulate money in a way that creates more jobs or creates uh, uh, different kinds of farms or ways for people to participate? And that was a step. These are well-meaning good. These are better people than me. They really are. They're kinder, gentler, more loving people than me, but they're addicted to a short-term fix rather than understanding the more systemic uh, opportunities here. Yeah. I know I have a good friend, Sharon Thornberry uh, from the Oregon Food Bank, who is really a leader in the field. And she talks and you know, her, her take on it is that we've done the easy stuff. You know, as a society, we've we've worked on hunger from, you know, feeding people essentially. And that's easy. So, you know, we need to do the hard stuff. We need to build the political will. We need to start being more creative and going more upstream to address the causes of hunger. I mean, nobody wakes up in the morning, oh, all of a sudden, you know, I'm hungry in the sense of I don't have enough money to feed myself and feed my family. It's because there's other stuff going on in their lives. And so we need to address the broader symptoms, the broader issues that lead people into that place in the first place. But the the hunger industrial complex or, or big hunger, sure. as you put it, is really entrenched. I mean, even from a... a 
you know, red state kind of a Trumpian perspective. They'll look and they'll say, "Okay, you got your well-meaning Hillary Clinton liberals on the board of Walmart at promoting these charities with people with, you know, good long names and and six figure salaries that this is part of that. The same way they look at Al Gore as sort of corrupt green. They look at all of this and they say, well, just dismantle the whole thing. Yeah, I don't know if they're saying dismantle the whole thing because, you know, they're, I think they see charity as uh, as a good. They see it as something that's happening in their community. It's a way for them and for their colleagues and their friends to address what they recognize as a social problem in their community. So they'd much rather have that kind of community-based solution than wa- than Washington telling them how to live or, you know, giving them right. money that's coming out of their tax dollars that they feel is, is wasteful. That right. They-, they would rather see Romney reaching out to his neighbor who has cancer and helping them make it through the month than Medicaid or something. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think it's, I, I think there's that kind of devolution to the community rather than seeing Washington solving all of our problems. Right. So they would be kind of they would be kind of for it too. I th- and- yeah, I think that that's what happens. I mean, and that's the really interesting thing about anti-hunger work is that it's very bipartisan. And you know, in today's society maybe that's not a bad thing. You know, maybe there's something good that, that we can find common ground among, you know, from Alabama to Oregon, that we can find some common ground on something. Um it's very you know, it, it, it's it's an approach that is politically neutered or politically neutral that has that appeals to everybody across ideological spectrums. It appeals to the liberals because you're helping the impoverished because you're helping people who are who are vulnerable. It appeals to folks on the conservative side of the spectrum because it is doesn't involve the government because it is a community based individual approach uh, gets into into that kind of ideology that that supports a. Uh, well, that supports that ideology. But to someone like you, who has a more, uh, uh, dare I say, systems approach to sure. it, the whole thing, it's kind of broken. It's a broken system. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the problem is that, yeah, it's politically neutral and it appeals to everybody. But that's the problem in some ways. Uh, the very the, the very strength is its weakness because everybody's concerned about hunger. There's a universal immorality to it, but there's not a universal sense of what we should do about it. The, the, the sol- and the solutions that we have developed, food banking, for example, are so shallow that they don't solve the problem. So if all we're going to do is to find the problem and the solutions in a very shallow way, we're not solving anything. We're just treating the symptoms. It's, it's a medical model. It's putting a Band-Aid on something rather than, than trying to deal with it more systemically. Well, you know, we- and, and I was just going to say that, that you know, a friend of mine talks about, uh, you know, uses a metaphor of hospitals. If all we do is build hospitals with emergency rooms... You know, that's what we're doing. You know, we're not we're not treating the can we're not building a hospital that can that can treat the more systemic chronic diseases that hunger has become. It's become a, a cancer on our society rather than a gaping wound. So you have to look at the 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 precursors, the root causes. I mean, and it seems to me that right. the the root cause, well, one of the big ones, is the the unequal distribution of wealth. And then the unequal distribution of wealth seems to be. Uh, uh, if not exacerbated, at least reified by the charity of, of food to begin with. It's certainly not addressed by the charity of food to begin with. It's certainly not solved by it. Uh, it, it doesn't do anything to, to challenge that. You know, let me, let me, I'm going to take this in a slightly different, yeah. slightly different rabbit hole. You know, like I said, I grew up in, in Youngstown, Ohio, right? Um, which, uh, uh, always was, and always has been a very democratic kind of place. I grew up in a place called Trumbull County. 
um, which is just north of Youngstown, literally right on the border. And it is a community that has very blue collar, very labor oriented. It's got a, you know, people there worked in the in the steel mills. Some of them, many of them now work in, in a car factory, a gym factory nearby. And I, it has always voted blue. It has, I think it voted for Nixon once in 1972. And then you have to go back and back until the 40s or something to find another time that it had voted for Republicans. And it voted for Trump this year. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that got folks who's they've seen their standard of living disintegrate over the past 30 to 40 years. You know, like I said, you know, back in, in, in the 70s and 80s, you, you, you would see steel workers who were uh, had a middle class living. You know, they would play golf at the public golf course. They would own a boat. They would, you know, be able to send their kids to Youngstown State University and make a decent living. Now, now those kids and uh, or their kids are, are working at Walmart or at the at the private prison, not able to make ends meet, and they're having to rely on SNAP. They're having to rely on on um, on food charity, on going to the food bank. And uh, you know, to to me, to some degree, you know, I, I'm really kind of toying around with this idea. But to some degree, I see that the anti-hunger community has been complicit in this in in Trump's election because the solutions that it, that it posited, it didn't challenge. Uh, it didn't challenge the kind of the hegemony. It didn't challenge, let me say it this way, it didn't, anti-hunger groups didn't focus on wages. They didn't focus on manufacturing jobs. They didn't focus on improving the overall economic outlook and, and picture of places like Youngstown and Detroit and Flint and the Rust Belt. What they did instead was focus on charity, which nobody wants, and they focus on, on SNAP, on food stamps as their solution, which is both of which are stigmatizing. So, people didn't want their solutions. People wanted jobs and they wanted good paying jobs and they wanted a return to the standard of living that they used to have back in the good old days. Because there's and, dignity in working for a living yeah. as a union guy. You know, it's... Absolutely. You're a man bringing home. I mean, it's sexist yeah. or whatever, but, you know, you're a woman bringing home. You're still uh, uh, participating in society. You're making a car. It's being exported to some other country. You see in the commercials... I mean, yeah, I understand that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we in the anti-hunger community didn't do enough to challenge that that paradigm that led to the decline of 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 industrial places like like the Rust Belt. And I think you know people saw that and they got frustrated with with that system and they looked to Trump for a solution. Well, and and you know, for better or for worse, Trump's rhetoric when it was comprehensible was was closer, I mean, to that than the sort of neoliberal. I mean, I did a monologue a, a couple of weeks ago about how, um, you know, Trump was was criticizing the NFL for um, caring about the concussions. I under and his base understands this. Well, oh, you're going to take care of all those poor kids who are, you know, banging around, and and you're, the sports losing its its thing, as if you're coddling the poor, coddling the black, coddling the yeah. the the athlete. You know, and that's the way. It, it, there's a certain, uh, a certain logic then that applies to the hunger issue. That oh, you're going to perpetuate hunger because you do make money off that. You know, your party does maintain power when the more of the country that's depending on you and your party for food stamps, the more power you have, and they resent that. Absolutely, yeah, and and that that was one of the the main arguments of the right wing against Obama is that he was the food stamp president. That was kind of the moniker they threw at him uh, because food stamps went up dramatically during his tenure. 
And, you know, the anti-hunger community sees that in a very positive way on some ways. You know, unfortunately, you know, Obama's our Obama's administration coincided with, with one of the worst recessions in this country. So it was a natural thing that as more people got unemployed and suffered, their food stamps would go up. But as the economy improved, the food stamp rolls didn't go down. And part of what happened was that the Obama administration loosened up the rules and made it easier for people to get on, on food stamps. And, you know, the anti-hunger community sees that as a very positive. That's one of their, one of their metrics of success. The, the number, the, the higher the number of people who are eligible, the higher the percentage of people who are eligible for SNAP who are on the program is is a metric of success. In some ways, though, I mean, I see why, that's, why that's bad in one way, but in another way, it's good. It's perfectly it, good. We're getting closer to universal basic income or some kind of a, a sane food policy. Or people are getting the, the programs and the benefits that they deserve, right, that they're eligible to. Why shouldn't that? Why should they not get that? Because they're struggling. They're suffering. They should get what they're what the government says and what the law says they're entitled to. Right. But there's there's stigma and there's barriers that that have been thrown right. up to get them to it. Because so, for sure it's not the most efficient way to go about this. I mean, for Walmart to underpay people so that then <laughs> then they need to get free food from a Walmart supported food program. I mean, if if you take so much money out of the system, it's like that Zuckerberg thing. He says he's going to give back ninety nine percent of his money, you know, to charity. It's like if you're going to give back ninety percent of your money, then you've taken too much to begin. With. You know, and now you're going to choose where it's going to go into some top-down, trickle-down charity thing. Yeah, well, it's because it's cheap that way. It, we're getting the chump change as a society. The chump change, literally. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're the chumps. So what's the beginning? What's the first step? Listeners, they're listening, and they're going, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going <laughs> to take it anymore. This guy's right. I'm going to buy his book from a local bookseller. I'm going to buy, I'm gonna buy uh, Big Hunger. And then what am I going to do? How am I going to change this? Am I going to start a CSA? Am I going to teach people how to fish? What do I, I do? I think it's part of it is, is, is educating yourself and recognizing that you know just by giving money to the food bank, uh, and donating food to the food bank, you're not really solving the problem in the long term. Recognize that that's a short-term Band-Aid. You can still do it. It's still important to help your neighbors. There's still a great need in the society. I'm not telling you not to do that. But I think it's important that you recognize that that is only a very partial and temporary solution. And then you need to you need to push as a donor, as a member, you need to be pushing that entity, that food bank or that food pantry or your church that you belong to, perhaps, that is involved in that. Push them farther. How can they provide more comprehensive services to people to get to lift themselves out of poverty? Maybe they would do want to start a CSA or, or, or start some kind of food farm stand to, to, to provide healthy food in neighborhoods where there's not food. Maybe they want to start, you know, encouraging uh, some kind of job training program or taking steps to kind of move into kind of what I call development phase rather than just a relief phase. Right. I mean, in some cases, that's really hard. You know, at, at our food pantry is, I mean, 80 percent. It's like old people who don't get enough uh, whatever it is, Medicare. What are you supposed to get? Um Social, Social Security, Security. Yeah. yeah. That's not getting enough of it or whatever to be able to live and get food. And they're still coming just for the pasta and the ketchup and... Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it's a tough situation. I mean, we've created, we've created a monster in, in many ways and it's not going to be, that monster is not going to go away overnight. I, you know, from, if you're, if you're working in, in, in that sector, I think it's really important just to stop and, and to say, look, we've been growing year over year, year after year after year, we've been growing and we've been setting these goals uh, of distributing more and more food. 
is that good? Are we going down the right path or is that just a sign of our failure? Uh, maybe we need to set a plan where in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years, we're going to be doing something different. We're going to put more and more of our resources into policy advocacy, uh, into organizing, into other other avenues that really help our community to stop showing up at our door in the first place uh, so that we don't have to be doing this in 2035. We can be doing something totally different and helping. Uh, there's still going to be poor people, I'm assuming, unless we move into a communist society. Uh, as long as capitalism survives, we're going to be having poor people. But, but helping people at that point gain the skills, gain the capacities, you know, create a society in which their lives are better. When you look at the food challenge from a global perspective, what is the path forward? You know, half the people I talk to think, look, we got to just let Monsanto run with this, do some GMO, grow spinach on Mars or whatever it is they're going to do so we could feed all those poor African kids who don't have topsoil anymore because of drought or the poisoning of our mining companies. Or there's the other side that's saying, look, permaculture really works. We can leave the earth better than we than we than we found it. We can rotate crops and restore the topsoil in just a couple thousand years will be good as new. How, how do we move forward? You know, I think it's a it's a good question. I mean, I think I'm going to kind of just to take apart that question. I think there's there's technological answers and there's political answers. And the technological answers are what kind of agricultural system is going to feed 9 billion people in the year, in, by the year 2050, right? And I'm a big fan of agroecology and believe that's more sustainable. I don't think that we've seen enough research that absolutely proves that agroecology is going to be able to feed that number of people. On the other hand, the current cropping systems we have, the industrial agriculture, provide, you know, create enormous environmental externalities and are, co- are one of the primary causes of of global warming, especially our overconsumption of meat. So we have to look at, you know, not only the types of production of, of agriculture, but what are the consumption patterns of society? You know, if China, India start moving into the same levels of meat consumption where we as a country are eating, there's some going to be some serious problems that are happening in terms of in terms of climate change. So that's I think that's one issue. And I don't have a, a great answer for you about about that. I was actually I was just at a conference actually in, in Casablanca that was looking at food security in the Middle East and, and North Africa. And it became really evident that the resource scarcity, the climate, what's going to happen with climate change, the lack of water are real constraints on on the, on the region. Uh, the region's going to grow to from 400 million to 1 billion people within the next I don't know how many years. So it's going to require a lot more grain imports, but it's also going to require more attention to the livelihoods of small farmers because those are the ones who are ignored by the governments. And the, and this is the political part of it. You know, there's a lot of complaint about the corruption within local governments and their incapacity. So, you know, how do we as, as a global community, as a global society, address those issues and how do we transfer wealth, and which is what I think it's going to take, to some degree, to some redistribution of wealth and technology from the global north to the global south. Um, those are, you know, where's the political will to do that? And right. It's certainly not in Donald Trump's White House. And it's not even wealth as like, oh, well, let's go send them some bags of gold. It's wealth in terms of, you know, 
uh, uh, removing the impediments to their creation and exchange of value. They're not allowed to create value. They're not allowed to grow on their own land. They're not allowed to sell to the global marketplace. Right. Or they're being exploited by right. by by multinational companies that are taking advantage of them too. Right. To you know how many regions there are where you're allowed to grow food, but you're not allowed to sell it in your own community. You have to export it, and you've got to buy food from a corporation. Right. Or or the price that you're getting is is so low that you're really not able to accumulate right. any wealth. Absolutely. I mean, so that's it's it's not, you know, the way some people paint. It's like, oh, it's not Americans sending their dollars over there. No, it's about making a a level playing field for economic and value exchange. You're absolutely right. I totally agree. So we rig the system. Then we go, oh, those poor people. Let's send them some food. (laughs) Yeah. And that's I mean, I think that's nice. Yeah. And that's in some ways what's happening here in the U.S. as well. You know, we've rigged the system. Walmart's rigged the system. Uh, it's, you know, it's gamed it so that it has a political clout to, to stop, uh, minimum wage increases. And, but then it, you know, it gives a few million dollars here and there, uh, to food banks and food pantries and gets a tax credit for doing so. And it gets its little halo effect in, in, uh, in, in the newspapers every time it gives a donation of $50,000 to some food bank. I mean, it's amazing. I, I'm on Google feeds, you know, that uh, around food banks, and I swear it's just a constant thing of Walmart gave this food bank $50,000, that food bank $75,000. Every, seems like every newspaper in this country runs an article around those things. It's amazing the amount of, of earned media. Well, now I'm mad as hell and I want to take it anymore. And good. What, good. So, so you get mad as hell, I guess. I do get mad as hell. And what do you do for it? You take Alka-Seltzer? <laughs> what do you do? You write books. You march. But you don't have an angry quality about you. You seem nice. You seem content. You meditate. What do you do? That's a good question. I get mad. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to take it out on my dog. <laughs> or your kids. <laughs> or my kids. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a bigger problem. Um I don't know what I do. I, tr- I guess I just try to channel it. I mean, I, I do I do get mad, and I probably I'll probably live a shorter life because of it. <laughs> I'll probably uh, you know it'll I'll probably give me ulcers. I don't know. And can you live off your writing? No, no. I am uh, in the fortunate situation of having a spouse who is employed, and <laughs> who is subsidizing me at the current time. So, um, so you I'm, can activize. I can activize. Yeah. I mean, I'm taking basically till the end of the year to to do this and uh she's been wonderful in helping me support my dream so i've got to figure out a way to take this the next step or to kind of find uh gainful employment i mean that's the interesting challenge like so a lot of people have the same sort of insights that you do and then the next challenge becomes okay how can i sustain myself while working towards the social justice that i'm aiming for so i could go work for some big ngo and push against them, I guess. Yeah, and that exactly that that is exactly the the challenge, and it's not just economic, but it's also, um, you know, emotional and moral and physical. Right. I mean, I was again, I was just in in in, in Casablanca, and I met this this guy who's doing amazing work in developing and um, supporting local farmers there to develop organic crops, figs and walnuts and dates, and exporting them to Europe. Uh, but the poor guy, he's, you know, is, you know, he's going back and forth between New York and Morocco. He's American. 
And, you know, his, as he says, his kids hate Morocco because it takes their daddy away and it's, it's, it's harmed his health uh, because of, you know, the, you know, just the intestinal diseases one gets in, in living in that, in that piece. It's, so it's, it's really, you know, harmed his quality of life. And I've seen that type, type of thing uh, time and time again with activists. Um, you know, there's really a need for self-care. Uh, if you're going to be doing this kind of work. And it's something we don't do very well as a community. We burn ourselves out because we're so passionate. So for listeners who want to get more uh, uh, healthily and directly involved in in addressing food, where where do they start? I mean, they start by the book, I guess. To yeah, start, you can start by the, the book, you know, bighunger.org uh, and start is, is, is my website. You can right. take a look at that. Uh, the book's available at uh, through your local independent bookstores. Or IndieBound. IndieBound, yeah. There's the, the A word, uh, which I never encourage people to buy books there, but they do sell a lot. Then, you know, I, I just encourage folks to get involved. You know, get involved. You know, one thing you could do is you could start a study group, like a book group, and, and have other friends, you know, read the book and get it from the library or buy it and have conversations with your colleagues. You know, I encourage you to get involved with a local organization, whatever your inclinations are, and start thinking about these issues of of sustainability and leadership and, you know, just how do we, how do we move from a social services to a social change model uh, in, in, our, in our country? And how do we kind of get beyond the limitations that the nonprofit model provides? And that's a big thing. I mean, that's a big thing for people to learn. I know, uh, like Darren Walker, head of uh, Ford Foundation, Great he guy. kind of understands this now. Um, and he should hire you, if you, Darren, if you're listening. I think you should hire Andy to come in love to and work with run you, your food site. He'd love to work with you. It's a shidduch. It's a match made in heaven. This is beautiful. <laughs> um, but I, Thanks, I think Doug. a lot of NGOs are starting to realize. Oh, wait a minute. We are doing charity. We are doing. We are not doing social change. They don't. They didn't understand the difference between charity and social justice, and now they're just beginning to. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of folks, you know, I think in this era of Trump, people are becoming more committed politically and recognizing that they have to be, otherwise they're going to lose what they had. Right. Um, so they're having to to force them. Well, they're not having to force themselves. They're having to recommit in that direction. And food is just one of of many possible examples of entrenched. Do gooding, right? And food, food is food has to me. You know, I, I've been working on food issues for a long time. I don't want to say it's unique, but it does have the benefit of being very cross sector. You know, it, you can approach it from a cultural perspective, from an economic perspective, uh, from a spiritual perspective. You can look, you can enter into into the food arena from from a variety of different places. Right, and pretty much everybody needs to eat too. I like to. Yeah. And need to. I do need to, yeah. Otherwise, I get kind of cranky. Yeah, and other symptoms emerge further on in that. Yes, hunger the, lo- process. the longer yeah. down, yeah. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks yeah, for what you my, do. My pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining Team Human. I've been kibitzing with Andy Fisher, author of Big Hunger. We'll be back in the basement media squat here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Hello, Team Human listeners. This is Stephen here. Thanks for listening to another episode this week. And a special thanks to Professor Mara Einstein here at Queens College, who brought Andy Fisher to campus and to the basement media squat where we recorded this week's show. 
If you enjoy the show and want to get more involved with other listeners, consider supporting us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash teamhuman. There you can subscribe at the membership level that feels right for you. Your subscription and support helps us to sustain this weekly show. We appreciate it. Check out our show notes, both in the web browser and in your podcast player, to find links to our guests, the musical support, and the topics we're covering on today's show. Thanks for listening. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.